It was back in August of 2006. That's when an author named Graham English, he wrote an article which is titled, How to Make People Want to Follow Your Commands. Well, as I took a moment to consider this intriguing title, I thought to myself, wait a minute. Is it possible that this guy is just trying to trick me into following his commands? And listen, you know, I thought to myself, you know, if I read this article, will I end up becoming a mindless slave of Graham English? Well, with these questions in mind, you know, I decided I'm just going to throw caution to the wind. I went ahead and read the article. And after reading the article, I've come to realize that it's just best to do whatever Graham English commands us to do. Well, seriously, you know, when it comes to following the commands of others, I I just want to be perfectly honest that I don't really want to obey people's commands. You probably don't want to obey other people's commands. And to prove my point, let's just take a moment to consider the question, how many times have I broken the Ten Commandments that the Lord gave to Moses? How many times have I broken the Ten Commandments? And, and in order to, to make this you know, equation easier to calculate, we might just ask this, how many times today? How many times today have we broken uh, the Ten Commandments of God? And if right now you're thinking zero times, well then you just broke the Ninth Commandment because you lied to yourself. Well, thankfully for us, the born-again believer has been set free from the condemnation of the Ten Commandments. And at the same time, though, Christians have also been given a set of commands that we've been called to follow throughout the church age. And it's here in our text today where we find Paul. He's presenting us with three commands for Christians. Well, knowing how hard it is to even want to follow the commands that we've been given, it's my hope that we will see the benefits of become, becoming believers who are obeying the commands that have been given to Christians. And as we make our way through the text before us today, we're going to begin to see, first of all, that Christians have been commanded to walk orderly. Secondly, we'll see that Christians have been commanded to work diligently. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that Christians have been commanded to warn gently. Well, with this as our outline, let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Here we find Paul. He's presenting these three commands to the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica. Now, as you make your way to the third chapter of 2 Thessalonians, we should just take a moment to put our text back into its context. I'll remind you, it was back in the beginning of this chapter. That's when Paul encouraged the original recipients of this epistle to become those obedient believers who were doing the things that they were commanded to do. He even commended them because they had become believers who were doing as they were commanded. And after assuring them that God is providing every believer with godly guidance each and every day, Paul went on to present them with these three commands that we find here in in our text today. And with this as the focus, let's pick up our study of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 6. Here Paul declares, But we command you, brethren, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. 
For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's presenting the Christians there at the church in Thessalonica with three specific commands. But before we consider the details of these three commands, I want to first take some time to point out that the word command is found there in verses 6, 10, and 12. That word is translated from the Greek word paraangelo. And just to be clear, paraangelo is based on the root word angelos, uh, which is actually the word that, uh, that gives way to our, our English word angel. And, and you, know, you might be thinking about an angel as a, a, you know, a heavenly messenger. This could also be a human messenger. It just speaks of a messenger from God. And when coupled together with the preposition para, Uh, This word is actually used in reference to authoritative instructions or sanctioned orders that come from God through the messenger of his choosing. I like the way that the scholars who created the Bible in basic English, they render the first half of verse 6 in this way. Now we give you orders, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word command is now rendered orders in this version of the Bible. And from this, we can see that Paul wasn't adding commandments to the Decalogue of Moses. No, instead, he's simply presenting the authoritative orders, which is contained within this message from the Lord Jesus Christ, as he continues to direct the disciples there in Thessalonica to understand how Christians ought to walk, or in other words, how Christians ought to live. And as we take a closer look at the commands that we find here in our text today, we do well to notice that there is most certainly a way that Christians ought to walk, and also there's a way that Christians ought not walk. I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in verse 6. There he declares, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, as we consider this command, we should take a moment to consider what Paul meant when he refers to those who are walking in a disorderly manner. That word disorderly, well, it's translated from a military term which was used of the soldiers who march out of order or out of rank. You know, whenever you see uh, soldiers marching in a company, you know, you see that there's a rank in a file and everybody's supposed to be in line. And and it's real easy to spot those who can't walk in step or, or are kind of, you know, wandering from the order of the rank in the file and these sorts of things. This is what it means to walk disordered, to walk out of step, to walk out of rank, to walk out of order. The same Greek word was also used of those who are living in a lawless manner. You know, it's not difficult to see those who are living in a lawless manner. There's a huge difference between those who go up and actually purchase their, their property, you know, when they, when they go to the store and they, and they actually pay for the things that they're purchasing, you know. And, and then you can see those who are running out of the store with a full shopping cart and they didn't pay. There's a huge difference between those who are living orderly and those who are living disorderly. 
when it comes to disorderly disciples, you know, this, this word is used of those who neglect their Christian calling. There's a calling that Christ has for each one of us. And those who neglect that calling and do their own thing, they are disorderly disciples. Now, with all this in mind, I want to continue to consider the command that Paul was presenting here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you would look with me once again, beginning at verse 6. Here he declares, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, listen, I realize that many of us don't really want to hear this, but according to Paul, we've been called to withdraw ourselves from the believers who are choosing to walk in a disorderly fashion. Yeah, that's that's hard to hear, especially if we have loved ones that we care about who, who are not walking in the rank and the file of Christian commands. And as we consider this order to, to withdraw, you know, uh, the, the, that word withdraw, it was translated from a Greek word, which means withdraw. Yeah, it's plain and simple. We're called to withdraw from them. Seriously, the, the, the word speaks of separation. It's a separation that leads us to abstain from familiar connections with believers who are refusing to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And just for the sake of clarity, I want to consider the way that Paul explains it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's verses 9 through 13 where he says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now here in these verses, we find Paul, he's, challenging the Christians there in Corinth about their decision to tolerate the sins of a believer who was openly engaging in sexual sin. They were acting like, you know, they're so tolerant and so accepting and, you know, they were just willing to, to put up with the, the sins of this man uh, who, was, who was actually engaging in sexual immorality. And, and according to Paul, here he says, hey, I, I told you, don't hang out with these people. Withdraw yourselves from them. And then for clarity, he says, not the unbelievers. You know, the church today is is very amped up on making sure that we stay separate from unbelievers who are living in sexual sin. Meanwhile, turning a blind eye to the believers in the church who are living in sexual sin. According to Paul, we should start judging those who are in the church, the believers who are living in sexual sin. And according to Paul, we should judge those believers according to the word of God and then separate ourselves from them if they continue to live in a, in a, in a way that is sexually immoral or covetous or, or if they're engaging in idolatry or revelry, or if they're a drunkard or an extortioner, if they want to live in this sort of way, then the church should say, okay, go back into the world so that God can judge you there. Just to be clear, listen, Paul wasn't referring to those who are tempted with the wicked ways of this world. 
We're not talking about those who are tempted. Listen, even Jesus was tempted in all of the same ways that we are tempted. Paul's not talking about temptation here. At the same time, Paul wasn't referring to the Christians who are struggling to win the daily battles against their carnal cravings. Because that's a struggle that every Christian ought to engage in. No doubt we all have temptations. No doubt we all have opportunities each and every day to, to engage in those sinful things. And so we ought to be struggling against those things because this is the path of our sanctification. So Paul's not referring to those who are struggling against their sins. Instead, he's referring to those who are decidedly walking in a disorderly fashion as they choose to live for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And if this sounds like something you're struggling with, then it's time to realize that we've been commanded to walk in an orderly fashion. We've been called to walk according to the orders that we've been given in the New Testament. To prove my point, let's take another look at our text today. If you would look with me again here at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll begin reading at verse 6. Here Paul declares, We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's now presenting us with the contrast between those we ought to shun and those we ought to be following. And while it's true that we've been called to withdraw from the believers who are choosing to live in unrepentant sin, we've also been called to follow the example of those who are actually living according to the, to the orders and the teachings that we find in the New Testament epistles. And, and in other words here, those who want to walk in a way that is pleasing to the Lord well, we should make sure that we're walking according to the orders that we've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. With this as the goal, I want to consider the instructions that we find throughout the New Testament epistles. You see, it's in Ephesians chapter 5, it's verse 2. There Paul instructs us to walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. That's right, we're to walk in love, and specifically we're to walk in the agape love of the Lord. Not only that, but Paul also orders us in Ephesians chapter 5 to walk as children of light, as we walk circumspectly as those who are wise and not as fools. In Colossians chapter 4, Paul orders us to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside as we redeem the time. And in Galatians chapter 5, Paul instructs us to walk in the Spirit so that we won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We've been called to walk in the truth. We've been called to walk by faith. We've been called to walk in love, according to the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. I like the way that Paul sums it all up in Romans chapter 13. It's verses 12 through 14 where he declares, The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Rather than living for the lust of the flesh, rather than living for the lust of the eyes, rather than living for the pride of life, Christians have been ordered 
We've been commanded to walk properly according to the instructions of God's word. In other words, we've been commanded to walk worthy of the Lord so that we might live a life that is fully pleasing to him. And as we increase in the knowledge of God, the Holy Spirit will then help us to become those believers who are fruitful in every good work. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, Christians are not only commanded to walk orderly, but Christians have also been commanded to work diligently. Now, with this as the goal, let's continue to consider the commands that Paul is presenting here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you would look with me there, we'll, we'll go back to verse 7 and begin there at verse 7 where Paul declares, You yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now here in these verses we find Paul. He's presenting the Christians there in Thessalonica with a second command. And just to be clear, you know, Paul here is presenting this command with a didactic clarity by simply declaring, if anyone doesn't work, Neither shall he eat. Now, just to be clear here, listen, Paul wasn't referring to those who were unable to work for a living. There are many scriptures about providing for those who are in poverty because they're unable to work for a living. He's not talking about those people. Instead, he's referring to able-bodied believers who are simply unwilling to work. If a person is unwilling to work, though they're able to, well... They should probably go hungry until they're ready to work. And listen, I realize that many Christians have a compassionate desire to provide for those who are impoverished, and yet we must not lose sight of the fact that those who are able-bodied and yet unwilling to work, the Lord is expecting them to get to work and to, to work with diligence. Sadly, though, here in America, we've created a culture that actually encourages unemployment. As a result, we now have nearly 60 million people. This is according to government records. There are nearly 60 million people here in our country who are currently receiving welfare of some form, many of whom are able-bodied Americans who are just unwilling to work. Because, hey, why work if the government will pay you to stay home? Why go to work? It doesn't make any sense. Now listen, I support a welfare system that provides for those who are unable to work. I think that we as a nation should help to take care of the people who are unable to work. But I also agree with Paul that there's no reason to financially support the believers who are just unwilling to work. And yeah, that includes the, the so-called believers who you know, go out and panhandle on the streets and prefer begging to the difficult commitment of an honest day's work. I mean, why punch a clock? when you can just sit there on, on, the, on the side of the road and people just hand you money. Listen, within this group, there are thousands and thousands of people who have fully embraced the homeless life and for no other reason than because they're struggling with a substance abuse issue and they don't want to clean up. They'd rather sit on a street corner high or drunk than to clean up and be accountable to go to work on time. You might not know this, but there are more than 500,000 homeless people here in the U.S. as of 
uh, recent statistics. More than 500,000 homeless people here in the U.S., and it's just getting worse. Now, let me say this, that my heart breaks for the 30% of them who have mental disorders. I recognize that you know, there are people on the streets, vets and, and people with mental disorders and people who you know, are just struggling and, and need real help. And, and yet the compassionate government just you know, wants to let them you know, stay on the street without you know, helping them into an institute where they can receive help. We don't want that. But then within this, this group of 500,000 homeless people here in the U.S., at least 50% of them are just, you know, they're chronically homeless because of their struggles with drugs and alcohol. They can't maintain a, a job. They can't, you know, just continue to go to work because, you know, they're, they're too addicted to their drugs and their alcohol. That being the case, please hear me when I tell you this, that those who give money to the homeless are, are at least 50% of the time paying for a person's addiction. Now, I realize that this might sound a bit callous, and if that's the way I'm coming across, then you might like to know that I actually spent several years on the streets myself. From the age of 16 until I finally got my first apartment. I was on the streets, I was floating around, I was doing my own thing, and the reason why is because I wanted to do my drugs, and I didn't want anybody telling me anything about it. Didn't want my dad telling me anything about it, so I ran away from home. I didn't want the school telling me anything about it, so I dropped out of high school. I didn't want a job or a, a boss telling me anything about it, so I couldn't hold down a job. I didn't want any responsibilities, and I didn't want any accountability. And so, listen, I fully understand the mindset of the addicts who prefer the homeless life. That being the case, I can assure you that the people who gave me money while I was on the streets... They were only helping me to stay on the streets because they were helping to pay for my addiction. They were helping pay for my, they were enabling me. And in light of my own experience, I understand the point that Paul here is making here in our text today. To explain my point, let's back up and begin reading once again there at verse 7. There Paul declares, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. Now that's a hard verse to read right there, because I love free bread. Me and Oprah, all day long, love the free bread. But Paul says, no, we didn't eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul here is helping his audience to understand that he wasn't looking for a handout. No, instead he was more than happy to work of, uh, you know, as much as he could with his hands so that he could su- secure the supplies that he needed for his mission trip. Rather than becoming a burden to those that he was trying to reach with the gospel message of Jesus Christ, Paul used his trade as a tent maker to pay for the provisions that they needed along the way. And in this way, he was presenting the people with the right example that we ought to follow. With that, I want to consider again how Paul puts it here in our text today. So look with me again, beginning at verse 8. Here, Paul declares, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. From this, we can see that Paul had 
apostolic authority. He was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he had the apostolic authority to, to, to pass a plate, so to speak. He, he could have taken up financial collections everywhere he went for the sake of the mission. But he didn't. He didn't exercise this authority over people because, you know, he didn't want to be a burden to the very people he was trying to reach. Paul was out planting churches. Paul was out, you know, ministering to unbelievers so that they might trust in Jesus Christ. And he didn't want to be a burden to those unbelievers as he was trying to lead them to Jesus Christ. It didn't make sense. And while it's true that he was unwilling to ask the believers there in Thessalonica for financial support, it's also true that Paul presented the case. He's the one who presented the New Testament case for providing financial support for those in full-time ministry. As a matter of fact, it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. There Paul asks, Whoever goes to war at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? And the answer is lactose intolerance people. But then he asks, do I say these things as a mere man or does not the law say the same thing also? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ." Now, from this, we can see that those who have been called to full-time ministry, well, they ought to be financially compensated for the work that's being accomplished as they sow the seeds of God's word into the congregation. And and listen, this is something that, that we have no problem with when it comes to any other arena of this world. If you went to the movies last night, you didn't get to the box office and they're like, well, just come on in for free. And, you know, just during the movie, we're going to pass a plate and whatever you want to chip in, you know, you can, you can just give us that. And, you know, the people there in Hollywood who are currently on strike, they'll be happy with that, right? No, no, no. They charge you like $1,000 to come in and watch this, you know, movie that was probably a lot, a lot worse than you thought it would be. But anyway, they, they love to charge you for it. You know, you went down to the restaurant uh, before the movie and you enjoyed a nice meal, right? Did they say, well, you know, it's just a love offering. Just give us a love offering, whatever you... No, no, they charged you for that meal. Everywhere we go, you know, there's a price tag involved. And then, and then we come to church and, and the minute the pastor says anything about giving, he's like, well, he's just, you know, money grubber, you know, trying to get as much money as fleecing the sheep and these sorts. No, hold on a second. That might be true of some churches. But how many Christians are just guilty of dining and dashing at church? They show up, they enjoy the meal, and then boom, out the door, and no responsibility for giving anything to their church. Paul says, listen, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Are we not even more? You know, uh, uh, do, do we not even more have that right that secular establishments enjoy? Well, listen, knowing that this could come across as self-serving, please trust me when I tell you that, listen, if my goal was to use this pulpit as a means for getting rich, 
well, I wouldn't be teaching line by line and verse by verse. You see, teaching line by line and verse by verse through the Bible brings me to verses that most people don't want to hear. And, and so, you know, I, I, you know if, I was gonna, if I was going to orchestrate, you know, a, a, a scam to get more and more money, I wouldn't teach line by line, verse by verse. I would just focus in on all the happy, happy, joy, joy verses that make everybody feel good, you know, so that you're in the mood to give more. If I were to, you know, try to use the pulpit to gain more money, I would be preaching the prosperity gospel because, you know, somehow those prosperity preachers all have private planes. I want a private plane, <laughs> you know. So what's the scam here? Well, you just have to, you have to tell people that they have to give more to get more, and because of their greed, they'll want to give more so that they think they're going to get more, but then they don't actually get more. But I'm not interested in that scam. I have no interest in fleecing the sheep like Benny Hinn, who's currently selling seats at his birthday party at $5,000 a pop. You want to go celebrate Benny Hinn and his birthday? It's going to cost you $5,000. Don't even get me started on how much his haircuts cost. But they do call it a Hindu. Sad to say that these prosperity preachers love to cash in on the greed of their audience all in the name of Jesus. And while there are many pastors who are constantly using carnal tactics to pressure parishioners to give more money, I just refuse to exercise this so-called authority because I don't want to detract or, or, or diminish the simple teaching of God's word. I would much rather just work hard at preparing Bible studies that are true to the scriptures and present you with the doctrinal truths of God's word, even from a position of poverty if need be. I'd rather do that than act like a hireling who's only here to cash in on gullible Christians who think that giving is a means for gain. Well, that's, that's what I've been called to do, and, and, and we've all been called to work in some sort of uh, you know, place. Uh, and, and so you know, that might be full-time ministry, it might be the secular workforce, it might be the field of education, it might be a domestic engineer. But, but listen, we've all been called to work, and we've all been called to work hard so that we can become those believers who are contributing to a better society rather than just becoming consumer Christians who are constantly looking for what they can take from, from anybody who will give them free bread. To further make my case, let's consider the way that Paul put it back in 1 Thessalonians. And so hold your place here in 2 Thessalonians. Let's make our way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You see, it's here in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians where we find Paul. He's helping his audience to connect the dots between the way we're supposed to love one another and the way we're supposed to work hard and, and be an example to others. With this as the focus, if you would look with me here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I want to begin reading at verse 9 because here Paul declares concerning brotherly love. You have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Now, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's connecting the dots between the way we've been called to love one another 
and the way that we've been called to work with our hands and accomplish our job according to our calling in Christ. That's right. The Lord Jesus wants Christians in the secular workforce, and one reason why is because he wants to use you to reveal his character and his compassion to those who don't yet know him. Please understand that the majority of people in the workforce here in America are not waking up here today and running off to church so they can hear a Bible study about Jesus Christ. Proof of my point can be seen in Sunday traffic. How empty were the roads this morning? I made my way to church, you know, when typically there's traffic jams and, and it was just hardly another car on the road. And, and so, you know, here in this country, the, the secular workforce is filled with people who are not going to church to hear about Jesus Christ. How does Jesus reach them then? Christians in the secular workforce. He wants to use us to reveal his love to them as we work side by side with unbelievers. And it's for this reason that we have to work diligently and with the right perspective. Christian, listen. The Lord did not place you in your position in order for you to pursue paychecks and promotions. That's not why you're there. I'll remind you what King Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 23, it's verses 4 and 5 where he declared, Do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Cease, will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Christian, listen, we haven't been called to center our lives around our job. We haven't been called to find our identity in the position we have at our work. And so it's constantly, you know, clawing for a promotion so that we can climb up the ladder because we want to make a name for ourselves. This is not what God has in store for us. At the same time, though, he has placed us in the secular workforce so that we can work diligently so that a, we can provide for our family, but at the same time, we've been called to work with integrity so that we can be a Christian witness in the way we work. And that being the case, Paul commanded every Christian to work diligently for the glory of God. He didn't call you to go get caught up in the daily drama of what's wrong with the boss and why that coworker doesn't do their job and these sorts of things. And then you can get, jump online and complain about your boss. And these, Listen, we're not called to this. We're called to go to work and work hard so that we can be a witness to the unbelievers who are there. And so we should. And, and, and listen, this brings us to our third point because, listen, Christians are commanded to walk orderly according to the word. We've been called to work diligently so that we can reveal the character of Christ to our coworkers. And also Christians have been commanded to warn disorderly believers gently. And to explain what I mean by this, let's make our way back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want to continue to consider the commands that Paul is presenting here in our text today. So if you would look with me there, we'll pick up our study at verse 11. Here Paul goes on to declare, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. 
Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Here in these verses, we find Paul, he's presenting this third command to those who were walking in a disorderly manner. And as we take a closer look at this command, we must not fail to notice here that this message is actually made up of two parts. This command includes two parts, which which includes instructions for those who are walking disorderly, as well as directions for those who are called to warn the unruly. And what this has to focus, I want to take some time to consider the first part of this command, which is focused on the personal responsibility of those who are becoming busybodies. Now, uh, just to be clear, that word busybodies, it's found there at the end of verse 11. It's translated from a Greek word, which in this context, it speaks of those who are constantly going on and on about trivial matters, all the while accomplishing nothing. The same word is also used of those who bustle about uselessly so that they look busy, but really aren't doing anything of any importance or significance. And while they appear to be busy, they never really achieve any real work. Sadly, there are many in the church today who have become nothing more than busybody believers who are always busy, but they're just always busy about everybody else's business but their own. The same uh, concept here is conveyed in the word disorderly, which again is found there in verses 6, 7, and again here in uh, verse 11. And I want to remind you that this word disorderly, we considered how it's a military term used of any soldier who marches out of order or out of rank. And and oftentimes, you know, you'll have soldiers who are of a lower rank and they spend all of their time complaining about those who are at higher ranks. You know, they, they want to complain about, you know, a, a superior, a, a commanding officer. You know, they'd rather spend all their time, you know, out of order, acting out of order as they, you know, want to tear down those who are above them. Because why? We don't like following commands. So how many of us love to have a commander always over us? When it comes to disorderly disciples, we find a similar situation in the church. You know, Christians who are constantly complaining about their leaders, constantly complaining about those who are giving orders or or creating hierarchies and these sorts of things. Yeah, rather than just following orders, constant complaints. And this is disorderly. And and they're busybodies because they're always in in the business of somebody else. Those who are walking in a disorderly manner are becoming busybody believers who are failing to serve our Savior according to his calling. Why? Because they're always in somebody else's business. And here Paul is saying, mind your own business. This sounds like something you struggle with and pay careful attention to the command that Paul presents here in verse 12. Here he declares, now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now that word quietness, is, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of those who are no longer meddling or intruding into the affairs of others. The same Greek word speaks of the silence enjoyed by those who are no longer looking for daily drama. You know there's some people who are just looking for daily drama. They just need daily drama. And Paul is saying, hey, Work in quietness. What's what's another way to say it? 
Zip it. Stop it. Quit trying to stir up problems. Quit looking for daily drama. As we consider this command in light of the previous verse, we can see here that disorderly Christians have been commanded to effectively run in their own lane. Quit worrying about what the other believers are doing in their lanes. You run in your lane and keep your focus fixed on the finish line. Not only that, but the Christians who are running in their own lane you know, should continue doing the right thing. And that's what Paul says there in verse 13 where he declares, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. As you're running in your lane, stay in your lane and keep moving forward, doing the right things as you move towards the finish line. Knowing that there are times when the right thing that we're supposed to do is going to be difficult, Paul encourages us here to effectively maintain courage so that we might not grow weary in well-doing. And no doubt there are times when doing the right thing includes the gentle warning of those who are stumbling into our lane. Because there are disorderly busy bodies who need to be corrected, and there's going to be times, Christian, when the Lord calls upon us to do the correct, correcting. And, and to prove my point, let's consider the second part of this command, which is found there beginning, beginning at verse 14. There Paul declares, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, uh, here in these verses, we find Paul, he's now elaborating and expounding upon the first command that we found back in verse 6. Remember, it's there where he declared, we command you to withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Now, what is this tradition that they had received? Well, it's here in verse 14 where we learn that the tradition that they had received is actually a reference to the instructions that we find in, in the epistles. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle... That's a call back to the word tradition back in verse 6. And so we're talking about the instructions or the commands or the orders that we find in the New Testament epistles. And according to Paul, we've been called to challenge the disorderly disciples who are failing to walk according to the orders that we find in the New Testament epistles. At the same time, it's also important to understand that we've been called to correct the sinning Christian gently. Let's consider again how Paul puts it there in verse 15. There again he declares, yet do not count him as an enemy. They're not your enemy. The Christian who is sinning is not your enemy. They're your brother. They're your sister. And so they should be admonished accordingly. That word admonish, it's translated from a Greek word which speaks of a word of caution or it could also be rendered a gentle word of warning. In the light of this definition, we can see then that this command is not intended to hurt the disorderly disciple. The the word of correction should be gentle because we're not trying to hurt them, we're trying to help them. And for those who are doing the right thing and running in their lane, there's going to be times when the Lord calls us to offer up these gentle words of correction and provide them with the loving correction to what end? Well, for the sake of their restoration. I like the way that the scholars who created the New Living Translation rendered verse 15. Here's how they put it. Don't think of them as enemies, but warn them as you would a brother or a sister. 
Now, to further grasp this goal, we should consider the instructions that Paul presented in the letter that he sent to the church in Galatia. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. And as you make your way to the sixth chapter of Galatians, I just want to take a moment to remind you that we haven't been called to become busybodies who are searching the church for sinners. Remember, we're not supposed to be busybodies, and yet there are some who think that oh, they, they've got to they've find out what's happening in the church. Why did that person sit with that person? Why are they hanging out with that guy? And what are they doing when they get out of here? And they're, and, they're, and they're sin sniffers who have become busybodies wanting to know how everybody else is running rather than realizing that what they're doing is actually sinful because they've become busybodies. We haven't been called to become busybodies, nor should we become those believers who just love rebuking others because it makes them feel spiritually superior. Yeah, there are those Christians who they've placed themselves upon a pedestal of self-righteousness and they just, you know, call the shots from their pedestal as they, you know, throw out the rebukes because that makes them feel like they're doing everything right. We shouldn't be that way. Instead, the purpose of our admonishments should be for the sake of restoration. And it's for this reason that Paul presents us with these instructions here uh, in Galatians 6 regarding how we should correct a sinning Christian. Look with me here at Galatians chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Here Paul declares, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand that the believer who is preparing to admonish a disorderly disciple who's overtaken in sin well, they should first consider the state of their own spirituality. He says, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. In other words, you who are in the Spirit, you who are being led by the Spirit. Now, if, you've been, if you're being led by the Spirit, then clearly the Spirit's going to lead you to take any plank that's in your own eye out before he guides you to go and help take the speck out of the eye of another person. And so we ought to engage in a time of self-examination, you know, by the leading of the Holy Spirit. And after we've made sure that we are in the Spirit, well, that's when we can rely on the Holy Spirit to help us gently correct. To what end? Again, for the sake of restoration. Notice again in verse 1 there, Galatians 6 verse 1, Paul says, If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. Restore might interest you to know that the word restore here was translated from a Greek word. It's used of the process by which something that is broken is repaired. We find this word being used in extra-biblical texts in reference to doctors who would set a broken bone. And so the, the, this idea of restoring is the doctor setting a broken bone so that it can be healed, so that they can be restored. In the context of this passage, Paul is helping his audience to understand that the goal of every rebuke ought to be the restoration of the sinning Christian. That being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that every admonition ought to be presented in a spirit of gentleness. 
In other words, those who step forward to correct a sinning Christian should gently offer that word of warning as we attempt to lead them back to the narrow path of righteousness. As we do this, we should also maintain a humble perspective of our own sinful struggles so that we can avoid the issues that arise in the hearts of those who are struggling with self-righteousness. Without debate, it's easy for us to become self-righteous believers who are judging others according to appearance. It's easy to set ourselves upon that pedestal as we look down at the struggles of others. With that being the case, let's make sure that we take some time to consider our own weaknesses so that we might have a, a humble point of view before we set out to admonish another believer who's struggling with sin. As we begin to wrap up this study, I just want to take a moment to recap the commands that we find here in these verses because, listen, Christians have been commanded to walk orderly according to the instructions that we find in the New Testament epistles. Christians have also been commanded to work diligently as we set out to become a godly example in the eyes of our co-workers. And finally, Christians have been commanded to warn others gently as we step up to challenge the disorderly disciples who have been overtaken in any trespass. And knowing that our sinful nature is completely opposed to all commands, then I have no doubt that our flesh is looking at these and saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to walk orderly. I don't want to work diligently. And I certainly don't want to spend any time warning others gently. Yeah, our flesh is opposed to any command. Our flesh loves breaking every command. And knowing that our sin nature is opposed to these commands, it's crucial for every Christian to remember that you have to walk in the love of the Lord in order to keep his commands. You're not going to keep his commands in the flesh. No, instead we have to walk in the Spirit in order to keep the commands of the Lord because we have to walk in the Spirit in order to walk in the love of the Lord. And so in order to keep these commands, it's crucial to remember that we have to walk in the love of the Lord and those who walk in the love of the Lord will keep his commands. And so let's do just that. As we leave here today, let's make sure that we're walking in the love of the Lord so that we can walk orderly, so that we can work diligently, and so that we can warn others gently all according to the commands that have been given to Christians. Let's pray.